This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krauss, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer and educator Peter Retzloff. Peter is a New York City-based drummer, and as a performer, Peter is equally at home in jazz, rock, funk, Brazilian, Afro-Cuban, Afro-Caribbean, Odd Meter, and New Orleans drumming styles. Peter has played with Kenny Warner, Greg Osby, Diane Shore, Ray Vega, Manor Ferguson, just to name a few. As an educator, Peter is the director of curriculum and a full-time instructor at the Collective School of Music, formerly known as the Drummers Collective. At the Collective, Peter teaches private lessons, and he teaches classes in jazz, rock, funk, and R&B, Brazilian, Afro-Cuban, and Afro-Caribbean drumming styles. He also teaches reading, chart interpretation, rudiments and technique, and ensemble repertoire and performances in varied styles. In addition, Peter teaches at the New School in New York City. If you're interested in finding out more about this episode and all of the over 250 episodes that we've done here at Working Drummer Podcast, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Stitcher, iTunes, where you can subscribe to us. You can also follow us and subscribe to us on Spotify. Check us out there. So for those of you that are Patreon members, there's a brand new video on our page that you can access with a couple PDFs, something that I personally put together that was a challenge for me and a lot of fun to do, kind of a hand-foot combination thing that I discovered during the shutdown time where we all are spending maybe a little bit more time practicing and working on some new skills. So if you are a Patreon member, you can access that. If you are interested in becoming a Patreon member and supporting this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash working drummer. Patreon isn't your thing, then we have a PayPal option on our website. You can go there and make a one-time donation. We appreciate everyone's help over the years in keeping this podcast going strong. Hey everyone, in the coming months we're going to switch out some of our interstitial music and feature our good friend James Beyer and his wonderful snare drums, Beyer Snares. We're going to have a feature snare drum of the week with a good friend, Mark Beckett, and former guest, and we'll tell you what the snare drum is and how it sounds, and in one or two of the breaks during the episode, you'll hear a real example of the buyer snare drum in action. We'll let you know who the drummer is and which snare drum they're using. We'll also include links to the performances in the show notes. And of course, we'll include a link to the website where you can find out more information about the buyer snare drum. Our snare drum feature of the week is the Bayer 4x15, performed by Nashville session player Mark Beckett. This was a fun interview and connection for me. It's been years since I've had any interaction with Peter. He was a few years older than me, and uh, some of my classmates in college knew him well, and I knew he was a busy player, a wonderful teacher in Columbus, and then knowing that he moved to New York just seemed like 
the most logical thing for him in his career. I think one thing that stood out for me during this conversation is just recognizing his work ethic and his perseverance. I think you'll pick up on that as well. But I really enjoyed my conversation with Peter Retzloff. Hope you dig it too. I moved to New York in 1993, and that move was was at a time that I think was a really growing period, like painful growing moment for me because I felt like I had done everything I I could in Columbus and there wasn't anything else really that was going to come my way there that I hadn't already done. Um, you know, there was obviously other gigs going on that I didn't play, but I would never play those. I, I felt like after careful consideration and I just said, wow, I, I need to do something else, but I don't know what to do. And I'm sure I made everybody around me pretty miserable and I was pretty miserable because I just didn't know what to do. And I think, I think when any of us are stuck, it, it makes things really difficult. So I can tell you a little bit about this and, you know, hopefully somebody could at least relate or maybe it'll even help them a little bit. Of course. I remember reaching out to Bob Brighthop, our teacher, who continues to be a great mentor to all of us. Um, and, and I just said, I think I want to go to grad school. And Bob uh, contacted Bill Dobbins, who was teaching at uh, Eastman School of Music. And I talked to Bill, and he said, if you want to come, you can be the teaching assistant, and I'm, I'll hold the, the, the moment for you, you know, for a little bit of time. But you need to make up your mind pretty quickly. Um, and, and he was very nice about it. And I, so I took a trip to uh, Rochester, and I looked around Eastman School of Music, and when I walked in, I said, this is an amazing school with amazing faculty and students and facilities, but I don't think this is for me. And I just remember being instantly so depressed because it was like the one door that opened seemed like in, in my gut, I just felt like it wasn't right. And, it, and it's really interesting, at least to me, um, I, I, I booked a hotel overnight and um, I remembered that Steve Gadd lived in Rochester at the time. And I'm like, this whole trip seems to be bad. Maybe I could get a drum lesson with Steve Gadd. So <laughs> right. stupid me, I call him up and he answers the phone. <laughs> and so I'm like, hi, I'm Peter Retzloff. You don't know me. I was checking out Eastman today and I probably sounded like, you know, I needed some psychological help in this moment or something. He's like, oh, you want to live in New York. So, you know, what are you thinking about? And I was, he spent an hour on the phone with me. Yes. And just talked about lots of stuff. And the, then at the end of the conversation, he said, I have to go. You know, my family's calling me. But do you want me to take you to breakfast tomorrow morning before you leave? And I'm like, yes. Wow. So he called me the next morning. He said, I'm sorry. Something came up. My kid you know, hurt themselves and I, I'm, you know, have to deal with that, but I owe you breakfast. And I just, in that moment, I learned something about humanity and I learned that um, probably the greatest reason that Steve Gadd is who he is is because he would talk to me on the phone like that. And, and uh, it's ironic that today after I hang up, I'm teaching a class online on soloing and today we're talking about Steve Gadd. Of so, course, yeah. He came to my school after that. He came to Manhattan School, where I eventually went 
which I'll talk about in a second. Mm-hmm. And he was so mobbed with people, I couldn't even. I, I didn't feel like it was right for me to like go up and hey, you talked to me last year. You know, <laughs> I, I kind of left it alone. And I'm like, at some point, I'm going to meet this guy, and I'll be able to thank him for this moment. And there was another time I was recording at the the famous Power Station Studios. It was called Avatar. By the time I was there, and he was in the other room while I was recording. And I'm like, man, I hope I run into him at the water cooler sometime today. And I never did. And, um, another funny little side story of that is, uh, they left a little bit before us for two days. We were both there two days in our various projects and his drum set was sitting there set up. And I'm like, I have to go hit Steve Gadd's drum set. (laughs) Yeah. And so I, I went in, you know, there was nobody there. It didn't seem like I was going to, you know, get beat up by security or anything. So I hit each drum one time and I'm like, there's nothing special about this drum set except, <laughs> except yeah. when he plays it. When he plays it, it's special. There's nothing special about this drum set. And that's a good reminder of what's important, which is learning how to play and, and, you know, both technically and musically and, you know, he did his work. So that, that every was every situation. <laughs> you, you, you know, that reminds me of so many guests that we've had on here that just open up and are amazing human beings. We're reminded of sometimes this pedestal we put our heroes up to, and they're so many of them are just great human beings ready to share and pass on information. And it's been such a joy to discover that through the podcast, you know, in many yeah. ways. That's absolutely the truth. Yeah. So can I talk about Manhattan School now? Please do, yes. So Jim Rupp, who we both know very well, mm-hmm. um, great Columbus drummer and owner of Columbus, uh, he, I, I asked him, uh, do you have John Riley's phone number? And so he said, yes, I do. So I called John Riley a Sunday night, and this was all in the same time. Like I was like, I don't really want to go to Eastman, but maybe that's the only choice I'm going to have. So I called John Riley this Sunday night and I introduced myself, said, you don't know me, but my name is Peter Retzloff and um, I, I want to come and study with you at the Manhattan School of Music. I want to work on my master's degree. I've been looking at some other schools, but I really want to live in New York. And um, there was this awkward pause on the phone. And then he said, well, you know, the last thing that New York needs is another drummer. <laughs> And then there was another awkward pause on the phone. And I said, well, I'm coming anyway. So can you <laughs> yeah. what I do? And he's like, well, in that case. And then he spent an hour on the phone with me. And he told me everything I needed to do down to the smallest detail of what I needed to do to put my best foot forward in, in an audition for, for Manhattan. And um, around this time, I also came to New York City and I wanted to w- walk around the Manhattan School of Music. Well, of course, Manhattan School of Music's at 120th and Broadway. And, um, you know, right in the heart of, you know, New York City's craziness. And so, of course, they have a security guard there. And so I tr- go in the building unannounced and the security guard's like, can I help you? And I said, well, I, w- I kind of wanted to look around the school. I want to come here, but, you know, I'm here for a few days. And he's like, you've got to make an appointment for this. Get out of here. You, you can't come in here. <laughs> and, and so I waited outside and I had like a, a corner shot of, of the security desk and I waited for about an hour and he left for a minute. 
And I ran down past the security office and I went into the first classroom I heard music coming out of. And so I, I probably looked like, you know, some crazed psycho killer opening the door and sitting down unannounced in this class. And the band was playing and they sounded amazing. Little did I know that those guys were like the best players at school and all of them would, you know, very soon become my friends. And um, so the director of the band was Rodney Jones, is Rodney Jones, who's a great guitar player in New York. And he's like, can I help you? And I'm like, well, I just ran in here. The security guard wouldn't let me in, but I want to see the school. And again, I probably sounded like, you know, some crazy fool. He's like, man, sit down, relax. Just take a deep breath. Everything will be okay. You can watch my whole rehearsal. And then at the end of that, he said, hey, I'm going down to a gig. Do you want to take the express train down with me to uh, I'm going down to 14th Street? And I'm like, I didn't even know what the express train was. I did know I got on the subway a little before that. So I knew that. And I'm like, yeah, of course, the express train. Let's go. And he told me everything he knew about me being successful at you know, my audition and what they were looking for. So a combination of talking to Rodney and especially John made it possible for me to succeed in the audition. And, you know, when I got into school, I felt like I had miles to go. But that that experience of going moving to New York finally and um, uh, just being able to study, be in New York, be around my friends here, just that that was the beginning of a new chapter of my life. Um, interestingly, uh, last two weeks ago, I did a zoom masterclass with a friend of mine who teaches in Finland now, and I did it for his students. Well, I met him at the Manhattan school of music. Mm. So, so, you know, it's interesting how these, these friendships, I almost said contacts or connection, but I hate those words. It's really friendships, uh, still are alive today. And uh, I couldn't be more proud of everybody that I went to school with who's doing well, which everybody is. They're all, they're all doing well. It's interesting about your, you, you mentioned friendships. Uh, my co-host ha- had a conversation with uh, one of our guests and they were talking about it's the music business. It's not music friends. And uh, he's a couple he's pushed back on that in a couple different uh, other ways where it's like, yeah, it is music business, but the music business, like so many other businesses, is built on relationships, you know? It's friendship to me. It's beyond that. I mean, yeah. everybody that have a business relationship with, we have friendships. And that, that to me, is more important than anything else. I think bi- good business comes from people that you could relate to and people that see who and what you are and, and what, what, how, it, how it is to be with you one-on-one or, or right. in a situation. And I just think that that's, I, I hate the word, uh, networking. I hate contacts. I hate connections. And, and certainly people have called me coming to New York at first and, Hey, can I sub for you and all that? And, and they've ended up being very successful. So I think that there is a part of that, but to me, I think, I don't know. I, I I'm not really that type of person. I'm trying to find people I could relate to first of all, before anything else right and and i just think that's important um i have several sponsors endorsers and and all those came from me personally meeting somebody at the company that i could relate to and when after we talked they said hey by the way and and i just think that's really important i i endorse zildjian remo 
cannabis and innovative percussion. And there's people at each one of those companies that I feel like I'm friends with. Yeah. And I have a personal relationship with them, uh, even if I don't see them a lot, you know, because we're all busy. But it's it's not like I went out and tried to get any of that. You know, it came from like conversation that made sense. And so I think that that's really an important thing. Once I went to dinner and uh, Paul Francis, the, the head symbol maker at Zildjian was there. Well, I ended up sitting next to him and talking about symbols for three hours. And, you know, we've been friends ever since. And yeah. and. And that's how it goes. Um, right. And that's true at all, with all the companies. So I, I just think like contacts, business, you know, th- this is more like the business world. You know, if you want a job, you know, I don't know, selling widgets, it's probably more like that. Um, but I think music is just such a personal, special thing that it really it's got to be some kind of personal connection first. If it doesn't have that, I'm not so interested in, in really pursuing that. I don't really want to work with people that I don't relate to on a personal level. And some people don't relate to me, and that's okay too. They should find the people that they relate to. Right, right. There's enough to do in the world for everybody. I mm-hmm, think. Mm-hmm. There's a gig for everybody, I think. I, I believe that's true. You know, when you live in a town uh, like New York, there's competition, insane competition, but I believe that there's opportunities as well especially if you find your people or, uh, you know, find the work that's there. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And I think things are different now than they were. When I first came to New York in 1993, I just was always out meeting people and, and, you know, just again, trying to find friends, find, trying to find people that seemed like we had something in common. And luckily I met a lot of older guys at that time, and obviously, I, I was somebody who was interested in trying to, you know, find new people. And some of them really talked to me. And, and they, they, I remember one guy was like, Man, you couldn't have believed the work that was here in the 1960s and 70s. Mm-hmm. There was just so much work here. And I can remember meeting other people who said to me, Oh, it's over. It's, you know, it's no good anymore. You know, but the people that I, I tended to like more. We're just like, well, you just got to figure it out, young guy. You know, you, 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 there's room. You know, you just got to keep changing. And if I have one motto in the world, it's that. Things keep changing. And I think the day that we say, oh, man, it was better before, th- th- that's the day we die. That's the, w- the day that our viability no longer really means as much. And I think that that's really, really important. Um, I found the people that were the most dark about the current situation were the ones that were unwilling or unable to change with the times. And um, I think there's more great music today than ever. Mm-hmm. And um, I still listen to all the same music I did when I was a kid um, and everything in between. Um, and I just think that there's more high level players than ever and more interesting things going on and more interesting people to talk to than ever. And it's just a changing environment. And boy, this pandemic has, has pushed it yet another place. Right. Right. And and I think, you know, the, the mindset of a musician is always learning and having roots and having structure, but also being able to improvise in the moment and being cool with that. And so I think musicians are really uniquely prepared to deal with the, the, changing situations in the world 
And uh, I think it's harder to make a living now. And um, I certainly work really, really hard every day. And I really, since this pandemic happened, I've been in my house more. And I got to say, this is the most rest I've had since I was a teenager. (laughs) And and it's been kind of, it was kind of refreshing for a while. But now I'm like, well, it's time to learn some new things. So I'm digging in and I'm busy. I'm doing five different things today. You know, and this is just an average day for me. You know, they're all in my house. But, um, you know, there's just always more to do. Well, well, what is an average week for you? What what does a week look like for you? Well, when I first came here, the average week was going to school and going out and practicing every day a lot. And um, then I got out of school and my main concern was paying my rent, um, which was easier then than it is now because rent was cheaper in New York at that point than it is now comparatively. Mm-hmm. And um, so right away I could play gigs and for a while I wasn't teaching I you know I was a I was a longtime teacher at the Columbus percussion store um and I really learned how to teach there um I taught every day every every uh Tuesday Thursday Saturday at the Columbus percussion and um so when I came to school it was really nice to just be a student again for a little while and I saved up some money and I I was just kind of really living cheaply and just trying to stretch my money out by the time I got out of school I was out of money so I really needed to get gigs and and I still wasn't teaching much and um Bob Brighthop again you know one of our you know big mentors in our life Mm -hmm. he said I just recommended you for the drummers collective um you should call this guy and he gave me his number and I called John Castellano who was uh the director of the school for a long time and we had a meeting and he's like, man, you sound great. It sounds like we really could use you, but there's nothing I can offer you. Mm. And there'll probably never be anything that I could offer you. But if you want to keep in touch, feel free. And like many things in life, um, almost right away, somebody quit the faculty and moved. And he called me and he said, hey, you want to do a class? And um, so uh, I said, of course. So I taught a class. And in the class, uh, I was teaching jazz. It just happened to be a jazz class. Um, and and uh, the, the busiest teacher there, uh, his name is Michael Lauren. I just saw him on FaceTime two days ago. So wow. I'm still in touch with him. Yeah. And he watched my class and he said, hey, this guy can teach. We should keep him around. And so that became then part of my income. And at that point, I started traveling. I, I started traveling to Europe more and um asia a little bit and definitely around the states and you know just trying to play with more bands so my my week would have been back then in the 90s and early 2000s my week was like a bunch of gigs and then teaching a little bit and as time went on i just felt like i think i want to teach more and just take the gigs i want to take and stay more in new york um, I felt like I, re- I remember I was riding in a train in Europe one day and I said, you know, by the end of today, I will have worked 14 hours, you know, between the travel and the sound check and the gig. Right. But I could do that every day in New York and, you know, double up on everything. So that that created a new mindset for me. And I just started to teach more. And um, I taught at some other places. I taught at a really good private school called Friends Seminary School here. I taught a little bit at City College. I taught at the new school, but as time went on, it seemed like the collective was more 
fitting my skill set, which, which is being able to play a bunch of different styles and teaching a bunch of different subjects. So, so um, if we fast forward to today, basically I teach four or five days a week at the collective and I'm really the only full-time teacher there. You know, I, I definitely am like full-time hours mm-hmm. and, and I head the percussion department there and um, we are doing great. It's, it's really great. That's um, awesome. I think if I just go to the side and talk about the collective a little bit, please. Um, that's always that's always been a player school, and um, as we know, it has this amazing, you know, multi-decade uh, reputation of of being you know the premier drum school in New York City. And um, as time has gone on, I think it's gotten more organized as a school. And uh, not that it wasn't organized before, but the uh, initial premise was different drummers came in and they taught whatever they do. And the difference now is a student could sign up for in between one day, you know, they could come, you know, for a lesson or they could stay for two years. And um, in the, in the two year program that we have or the year and a half program or year long program, all three of those teach a wide variety of styles in the beginning as well as technique and reading and theory we call at the school, we call theory musicianship. And um, also every student plays with pros from New York every week. So, so I think that really there's, there's no school that's a better place to come to. Um, at the school, I teach technique to every student. I teach uh, reading, chart reading to every student. Um, I teach jazz. I teach funk. I teach Caribbean music. I teach uh, New Orleans music, and uh, it's just been a tremendous learning opportunity for me. Has teaching changed? Because, I mean, you've been teaching essentially since 1984, man. If you go back to Columbus, which I want to talk about Columbus as well, but, I mean, I I know you probably learned so much about teaching and how to teach, but uh, how has relating to students today differed from 10, 20 years ago? Or has it changed? Yeah, I think it's changed because life has changed. Um, I think the biggest paradigm, that I, the, the way I could name this paradigm, is everything slowly and or quickly is turning from analog to digital. Yeah. And, and um, that means, you know, digital is the computer world. Analog is the six-night-a-week gig I had when I was a teenager in high school. Um, and... Again, someone could say, well, the, you know, back in the day was so much better, but I don't really say that. Yeah. Um, I just say different. Right. And, and I think that um, if there's a student that comes to the collective, they probably saved their money or they fantasized about coming to New York or they you know, saw some video that they like. And uh, the school has a great reputation. So a, a lot of teachers that go back home teach their students and after a while they say, you need to go to my school, go to the collective. So we find students in many different, uh, by many different methods. But I think there's, you know, there's never a student that wants, that doesn't want to be there. It's not like teaching a kid that his parents are forcing to take lessons. They want to be there. They're there. Right, right. You know, some people may be late or they may, you know, I don't know. They went out and hung out the night before, or whatever. Everybody has their their way that they're dealing with life, but they do want to be in class. And part of my job, I feel like, is uh, I feel like it's it's 
part the the presentation of the knowledge that I'm supposed to be teaching, but part of it is like character development. And, you know, there's never going to be a kid looking at his phone in my class. It's just never going to happen. And I will keep talking to them until they give up. And I'll never give up. So I just always say the same thing. I said, I'm never going to relent. <laughs> You're never going to win this. Yeah. So and, and so at least for me, everybody's very well behaved. Sometimes students push back and I can push back too. Not physically, but just, just verbally like this is what you need to be doing. And I, every like my birthday just happened a, a few days ago. And so many people reached out to me like, I was your student 10 years ago. You know, how are you doing? I wanted to update you. And some students I talk to a lot uh, still. They stay in touch. Other students I never talk to ever again. Um, most people are somewhere in the middle. But I'm so proud of all my students and I have so many great students doing amazing things today. Um, you know, there's three students that are on Broadway now from wow. the collective. Um, I don't know. It's just so many people are doing so well. Touring, recording. Um, Chris Coleman came to the school when he was 17. I remember him the day he got there. Wow. I, I him two weeks ago. So, you know, it's, it's, it, I just feel like it's a real community. Drummers are communal, for sure. They like to hang out together. And, and I just feel like part of my job is, is teaching young people, young adults, how to be better adults and how to learn how to learn. And I think some, some students will, out, right out of school, get a great gig. Other people may, their, their life may transition to something else, but through the classes they take, not only with me, but other teachers as well, um, they're going to learn how to learn and they're going to learn how to, to act right. And they're going to learn how to be disciplined and they're going to learn how to be focused. And I always say that music teaches somebody what they don't know. If somebody's uptight, they got to learn how to relax. If mm, they never yeah. show up, they got to learn how to show up. If they don't know how to organize their time, they're going to learn their, how to organize their time. If they forget many things, they're going to learn how to memorize things. But music is a real um, equalizer because we need all these skills. Also, music is like sports in that we have to do it. It's not just learning some mental thing. We actually have to do it. And to know it and to do it are really two separate things. And they're related, but they're separate. When, so, when you're teaching so many different people and different styles, is there maybe one thing you want every student to walk away, a skill maybe that, that, that you want to teach them to make sure that they have? Well, I think the, the list of things I just said are skills that every student should have walking away. Yeah. I teach tech classes. You and I were lucky to study with Bob Brighthop, who really helped us with all of that. And so I feel like, you know, through Bob, I met Ed Sof and Guy Romanco and Steve Houghton and Jim Chapin and Gary Chafee. I hung out with Phil Shipley a lot in Columbus. <laughs> so many people. I studied with Garibaldi, Kenny Washington, John Riley. You know, and I, I, I talk to almost all of these people if they're still around um, still, you know, and, and some more than others. But I just talked to David Garibaldi the other day. You know, he was my student when I was a teenager. And so I, I feel like I got all this good foundation from these teachers. And I also saw what a good teacher was, how they acted, how they treated me. And I also 
have studied with other people that weren't on the level of these people. And I've observed other people acting many different ways. So I think I had a good background uh, as to how a good teacher functions. And every one of those teachers was different. They were all different people, but they were all committed and they were all knowledgeable and they knew how to convey the information. They knew how to deal with me too because hmm. I'm different than the next five students. And so for me, I look at every student as a unique person and I have to somehow communicate to them. Ed Sof once told me if a student can't get something, that's my fault. Wow. He was saying it was his fault. And I, I've adopted that principle. Uh, it's like I, I need to be able to explain and demonstrate something until someone can do it. And uh, so I've learned a lot about the art of learning, the science of learning. Um, I think good technique is something that a student should be able to walk away with. And not my technique necessarily, but just good technique, good sound fundamentals. They should know how to read. They should know a bunch of styles because in the world we live in today, we're probably not going to play in the same band every night playing the same music. So the more things we can do pretty well, you know, if you could do three things really well and several other things pretty well, you're going to have more opportunities for work for sure. Is there a way that you stay organized as a teacher? Is there a method that you use or a syllabus of sorts? Yeah, I mean, we have syllabi for sure at school. Um, and I mean, believe it or not, like if I lost every handout that I have, it's still all in my head. Right. You know, my, my syllabus is really in my head. And um, I've tried to be a very complete student learning things. So I really know history. You know, I think if we study a style, we should know the history of the style. We should know the great players. We should know songs in the style. What are the important records? We should understand not just the book knowledge, not the thing that the, the, the easy way to learn something is you buy a book. And I think that's the worst way to learn something. Hmm. You, you use books and videos as embellishment to really learning what the music is. If you don't know anything about the culture of the style that you're learning, you're screwing up. So... So for me, you know, I've just really tried to pull apart all these styles. If, you, if we had a video podcast, I would show you my record collection <laughs> and my hard drive collection. I have so much stuff, it's ridiculous. And I have tons of drum books. I'll also, I think drum books are great, but it's not everything. Right. And one, one observation that I made a long time ago is I don't know one piano player, bass player, guitar player, saxophone player that learned out of as many books as drummers do. And that, that yeah. shows you how good the drum book world is and, and how many good drum books there are. But to me, the drum book is only a small part of how to learn a style. Right. And if you talk to the guys, they're all like, man, I played the gig every night. So we, we somehow have to replicate what that is. So, and, and so you have two books that you've published and you've been, yeah, a, been a part of. Right? So um, <laughs> can you defend yourself on <laughs> adding yeah. to this library of drum books? And, uh, yeah. Well, I just told you also I have a whole closet of drum books. So I think, yeah. I think in, the, in the right sequence, in the right list of many things we have to do all at once, there's nothing better than, than some book information that, that can be you know, shown clearly. But the, the beef I have is that I get so many students that only studied out of books. I'm like, well, do you know one song in this style? And they don't. 
do you know, you know, 10 drummers that play in this style who innovated? No, they don't. So the, it's just like the teacher gave them a bunch of books. Right, and right. There's no other instrument like that. No keyboard player learned that. I, I just listed all that. But it, like nobody learned that way except drummers. Yeah. And I think part of the problem for us, too, is we don't really understand harmony and melody as well as everybody else. So we're limited. So we're always trying to learn more about um, rhythm. And we need to learn more about the whole thing because everybody else knows the whole thing. Every bass player I know knows as much rhythm as I do. Same with keyboards. You know, like every musician in New York knows everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm still trying to catch up on just understanding some harmony stuff I hear. I'm, you know, I always say the same thing. I say I'm a dumb drummer because I'm dumber than the bass player and the piano player. And the irony is we have more power in the band than anything, anyone in the band, and we could do more to help or disrupt the music than anybody else. Mm -hmm. But it's fascinating, really. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that um, the teachers that I studied with really had some way of conveying information, and most of them had some way to connect it to the music. And, you know, so I, I felt like I, I feel through Bob that I was really lucky um, because he, you know, just hanging around there, all I had to do was hang around and something good would be happening. So, yeah. No, so, it, it, uh, Bob is such an advocate for you know, his students. And absolutely. it's, it's always been, I, I hear that uh, one of the best, uh, attributes that a teacher can have is to inspire. I agree with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the books that you've uh, published? Yeah. The the uh, first book I worked on was in conjunction with another teacher at school, Ian Froman, and these books just revolved around classes that we teach. And the idea at the time was um, the student. You know, we could have these books ready for the student and. In the classes, everything's there. And, um, you know, I was really, it was cool to work on a book project. It was, I had never done it. Um, I had been using all of the material myself. I just didn't have it in book form. I had it on paper. Um, and it was a, a great learning experience. And then the second book uh, came about with Jim Rupp, who, yeah. uh, you know, was the co-owner of Columbus Percussion, where I taught. I used to see him three times a week. And and uh, I just talked to him two weeks ago. So um, it's just funny how the world is small. It really is. Um, so anyway, Jim contacted me, said, hey, I'm working on this book. You want to do it with me? And so we got together and, and both of us uh, took a chunk of it and we, and we worked on it. And, uh, it, you know, it's, 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 it was really a great learning process. And um, later, you know, Don Famularo and Joe Bergamini said, hey, you know, I use your jazz book when I'm teaching. And, you know, that feels good. That feels yeah, like, okay, yeah. somebody got it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there was somebody – it's interesting. I was studying with John Riley when he was putting his books together. And I, I bet it's still the same today. It's not like you just study with John and his books. That might be a, like something he uses to teach a student. But he's got – a hundred other things you could do at any given moment with mm -hmm. any student, mm -hmm. depending on what they want and need. So I, I think that that's true with me as well. Um, and I think if we could connect the most important fundamental information in a style and then connect it to the student playing to music, 
And then you talk to them about history. You talk to them about, you know, the players. Yeah. Um, that, that, that holistic approach is how I teach. Yeah. And I, you know, a, a student could study with me for a while and not really get that much material, but I'm forcing them if they keep coming back to do things well. Sometimes the student's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Uh, can you give me something else? I'm like, no. To, to know it is not to do it. Could you use uh, an example of, of teaching? Maybe a student is coming in, they, they're not maybe super knowledgeable of Afro-Caribbean. And so okay. you show them some grooves and they're like, yeah, I got it. Next. And you're like, no, no, no. Yeah. Well, then I talk, start talking about, well, here's the balance on the drum set. And the cross stick sounds good when you play it this way. And the bass drum technique you use is this, not because I say it, but everybody plays it that way. Um, the hi-hat accents sound like this. And the unaccented notes sound like this. And yeah. here's how it goes together. And if you can't do that yet, you're not ready for anything new. You know, I, I took a lesson from, from David Garibaldi uh, when I was at uh, several lessons, but I remember I found his number and I called him and he asked me my age and I can't remember how old I was, but I was a teenager. He said, yeah, I don't really teach young people. I don't know. He, he, he didn't sound too interested. In, he, I think he was busy, really busy playing. Yeah. And it was just something else, you know, he had to deal with or something. And um, I just kept bothering him and he said, okay, I'll give you one lesson. <laughs> and I'm like, great. So we, I went to the lesson and he said, well, let me hear you play. And, I, you know, this is through the cloud of time a little bit, but I just remember he wasn't particularly mean to me. Um, it wasn't like, oh, man, kid, what are you doing? He just was like, okay, the first thing we need to do is learn how to play the hi-hat. Wow. Here's how you play the hi-hat. And he explained it to me in the nth detail. And then he's like, here's how you practice it. And we did some other things, but he's like, don't call me again till you can play the hi-hat. Wow. So I went home that day. I drove. I was driving, so I was probably just barely driving. I, I drove home, and I practiced the hi-hat for five hours straight. And at the end of that five hours, I could do what he asked. And so then I did it several more days in a row. Not that much, but you know, a considerable amount of time. And then I called him and he said, can you play the hi-hat? And I said, yes, I can. <laughs> and I went back and he's like, let me hear you play the hi-hat. And I could do it. And he said, great. So he saw that he could give me an assignment, I'm assuming, and that I would actually do the work and shut up and do, do what he asked me to do so, so I could sound better. And at the time, I didn't question it. I just said, that's what I'm going to do. If he told me to do that, I'm going to do it. And so then he said, okay, now we're going to deal with the snare drum. And we just rebuilt my beat. And at that time, I was playing in Columbus a lot. Mm -hmm. And I remember like practicing during the day and trying to make my beat different and better, a little improved. And then at night, I'd have to go to the gig and play in the old way. And I remember there was a period of transition. I remember talking to Bob about the same thing. He's like, I, I, one day I was in, in high school. Um, I live fairly close to Capitol and I walked over there and I banged on Bob's door <laughs> and I, and I said, Hey, I live in the neighborhood. I'm looking for a drum teacher. And he was very nice. He opened the door. He said, I have a few minutes right now. Why don't you sit down and play the drum set for me? And he was very complimentary. He's like, wow, you know, for a young guy, you, it seems like you've done a lot of work, but your technique is terrible. 
And I'm like, when can we start fixing my technique? And he's like, let me look in my book. Okay, next Tuesday. And so that became that that was the first lesson of, you know, lessons I'm still getting in other ways now. So what was it about your just being so uh, adamant about growing and learning and and kind of your personality of perseverance? Is there something about your upbringing that has uh, created this type of energy and 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 desire to learn? I think it's my mother, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because she was a go-getter and is a go-getter and she was always learning. She's a teacher, too. So mm. it's ironic. You know, like we're, my sister and I are both teachers. So, so I think my mother is my biggest influence for that. And she certainly, um, you know, she, she's like, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to play the drums. And, she, you know, she, she used to drive me to my drum lessons. And, and um, she let me play my first gigs when I was in high school. Six nights a week till two in the morning. You know what mother wow. would do? <laughs> what was that gig that you were doing at till two in the morning at that age? Well, back in those days, it was a little different than even by the time you came around. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a teacher in in, in I'm, I lived on the east side of Columbus, and um, I had a teacher at at a music store. I can't even remember the name of the store in uh, a shopping center on Broad Street, and I studied with him for about a year. His name was Terry Hampton. And he taught me how to read and a few rudiments and stuff. And I played violin before that for several years, and I liked that. But I liked the drums more. Yeah. And and uh, then I got a really uh, an important drum teacher to me named Tom Harriman. And the Harriman family was a uh, East Side Columbus family, and everybody in the family played it, played at least one instrument on a super high level. Tom sang, played piano great, played percussion great, played drum set great. Um, was a band leader. And so I really looked up to him because he, he was doing what I wanted to do. And um, I was having trouble because we lived in a, an apartment and I bought a drum set and, you know, we would get all these complaints. And one day Tom picked me up. He's like, hey, do you have a, have a little while right now? I'm like, yeah. And he picked me up in his car and he took me to a music store and they had a drum pad set there and it was 50 bucks and he took 50 bucks out of his pocket and he paid for it. And he said, you can pay me back whenever you can. Oh my God. I want you to oh keep God. practicing. And he took me home with the drum pad set and said, have a nice day. I'll see you at the lesson this week. And if it wouldn't have been for this moment, I probably wouldn't be talking to you now. So I've, I, in the event of social media, I've really reached out to this guy and probably embarrassed him by, you know, giving him the praise that he deserves. Yeah. He lives in LA now and he's like a playwright and a songwriter and a producer and so much more than just a drummer. And uh, I owe, you know, really my early years, Tom and, and Bob Brighthop, Tom Harriman and Bob Brighthop really were instrumental in me keeping going. That's amazing. And, yeah. And, but I think, yeah, I did want to just keep learning. And I, I realized, I recognized that if I could just get around people that knew more than me, they could really, right. they would see that I, I would do whatever it took. And, and when I have students like that, I, I go beyond normal to help them as well. Also, Columbus had a great scene. Hank Marr was there, who I ended up playing a bunch with um, before I moved. And Bobby Floyd, I used to go to the jam session and play with Bobby. Yep. Gene Walker, Tom Carroll, I played with him and his band with Hank and Gene. I mean, th- these were like really important moments in my life. You know, you could always tell an Ohio person, I think, in a way, you know, 
There's just something about that, which is, I think, good. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I still feel a, a real connection to Columbus. And every time I go back, I try to, you know, keep up with, with friends there. And, and um, I, I, you know, there's just a whole bunch of things I did in Columbus that, that shaped who I am today, for sure. Um, there was a, a kid rehearsal studio that um, I found out about, and I used to take the bus there. And it was just like a little room. And my teachers were Roger Hines and Stan Smith. Yeah. And Scott Steelman, who was the guy that ran the place. And um, there was a legendary teacher in Columbus named Dave Wheeler that um, did, this, did this workshop for kids before that. And by the time I was there, it was one of his colleagues, Scott Steelman, running it. So this is where I met. I, I spent a lot of time with Stan there. And he really helped me. And uh, the legendary Columbus drummer, Wally Mitchell, wasn't really a teacher to me because he wouldn't really teach. I don't know. I don't think he really ever wanted to teach that much. But I'd ask him a million questions always. And when I couldn't play something right, he was often hanging around the studio because I think he just practiced there. And that was kind of like his home away from home. And Stan would sometimes say, Wally, play that thing for him. He, He doesn't sound right on that. Play that thing for him. And then Wally would, of course, get on the drums and destroy it in the best way possible. And so, so by the time I was at Cap, I was playing in Stan's band, but I had known him since I was a kid. Yeah. And um, Roger Hines, I ended up playing with him a bunch. I played with him with Diane Shore. I met him when I was a kid. And um, I had a friend in Columbus who I just talked to yesterday named Lance Ellison, who's a great guitar player. And we used to jam in his basement. I met him at a party you know, somewhere in Eastmore when I was a teenager and, uh, from, you know, playing a lot at home and jamming with him that I I just played a lot when I was a kid. There was even a time, uh, in high school, unfortunately I didn't have a drum teacher and I just played the records every day and tried to read out of books. I could read music at that point. And what were you listening to and playing along with at at this point in your life? Um, Jazz. Uh, recently, I did a interview thing with Mike Clark. Well, I was listening to Mike Clark a lot, and he he sounded like Garibaldi and Tony Williams in his own, you know, legendary way. And so I was listening to Tony Williams with Miles. I was listening to Philly Joe a little bit. Um, fusion music was popular at the time, so some fusion stuff. Um, definitely all kinds of funk. I also like some prog rock, like Yes and Genesis and Rush. Big Rush fan. I saw their last. I saw saw their last show in L.A. I'm such a fan. Oh wow! And, and uh, I had a cousin, have a cousin who was a great drummer at one time, and he and I, he's a better drummer than me when he was a kid. Um, and he moved to L.A. to be a drummer and got into some other business things that are really working well for him. And he, he and I saw Rush on their last gig. That's so that's, yeah. <laughs> so anyway. Um, I am as well. I'm a, I'm a huge Rush fan. Yeah, People know yeah. that, but that's that's yeah. cool. It's uh, well, that, that's an Ohio thing for sure because they were so popular. <laughs> right, right, right. So popular in Ohio early on. Yeah. So anyway, um, you know, the day I knocked on Bob Brighthop's door, I had already been playing in bands in clubs, and my teacher uh, Tom Harriman. One day he said, "You know, I'm going to get you a gig. I'm going to get you a gig. You know, you're going to play six nights a week soon." And through he didn't exactly get me a gig, but he introduced me to a bunch of musicians who I got to know. And one day somebody needed a drummer 
every night. So I started playing in clubs. By the time I went to Capitol, I had already played in clubs for years. And, and I was lucky. I was really resourceful and lucky and just always trying to hustle stuff. Um, also in Columbus, uh, you know, I had these gigs and then I got the opportunity actually to travel with a band out of Columbus and I ended up staying in New York for almost a year, my first year out of high school. And so I, I really, I I really got to love New York and the band was kind of traveling all the time, but the home base of the band was in New York. And, um, I said, I want to come back here, but I, I need to go home. So um, I got another gig in Columbus, like five nights a week at a club and I started going to cap and studying with Bob. And I was actually working on a business degree too, because I really, I was on the fence as to whether I needed a music degree at that time. And later Bob got another kind of cool degree together. And so I ended up graduating from capital with a degree in business administration and another one in music. Mm. And, um, they called it jazz and commercial music at that time. It's called something else now. Music, I don't know what it's called. But, um, you know, Bob continues to have great programs at, at the school. It probably changed to the one that I got my degree in, music business. Uh, yeah, you know, probably. And it was split into two, uh, merchandising and, and media. And uh, I, I did oh, merchandising yeah. because I'd already fulfilled some of the uh, classes from starting in education music education and then switching my major. Um, but yeah, what capital was so great, man. Yeah, absolutely. So great. And, um, you know, I had played a lot of groove kind of stuff in the clubs. Um, and, and during this time that I, after I came back from New York, um, I remember I met Jeff Kayampa who Mm -hmm. ended up being someone that I spent a lot of time with playing music. And he's one of my favorite musicians. And we, he put a band together. We put a band together, however you want to say it. Um, called Zero One. And so that started me working in some like funky, cool rock stuff. And um, after a while, I got sick of playing the same music all the time in the in the clubs. And I decided to take a leap of faith and try to play some more jazz stuff in the clubs. And, you know, Bob was helpful. He introduced me to Tom Carroll and I started to play with him. And through him, I met Hank Marr and gene walker and i used to go to the jam session with bobby floyd and i'd watch joe Wong. Right. i'd watch jim rupp i'd watch bob play matt wagner was playing around at the time yeah um it's i mean so many people um and just i used to go to the saturday jam sessions and i just remember the 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 guys being so cool like they would say you know i know what you're trying to do but it doesn't sound right if you did this you would be going more in the right direction mm-hmm. and you know, things like that. Or I remember I subbed for Jim one night with an older piano player who just said, I don't really like how you played today. <laughs> and he wasn't wrong about that. And I played with him six months later and he came over and he gave me a big hug and he said, there you go. That's it. I remember you from before. That's amazing. And, and it was amazing. It was amazing. In the meantime, he had given me some music to listen to. So he's like, you need to listen to some slightly different music. Okay. And he made me some cassette tapes. I thought he he called me after the gig and he's like, can I have your address? I thought he was going to come over and beat me up or something. <laughs> and really, he just wanted to send me these these personalized cassette tapes, you know, kind of all la Von Weister, who we all got cassette tapes from. Totally, well. man. Yeah, and, records. And, and uh, so, you know, this is why I'm close to Columbus. You know, it's really... 
you know, I had a, so much early good music experience there that um, I just still feel connected. You know, when I go there, I see people. It's like I, you know, we might not have seen each other since the f- previous year, but um, I just feel very connected. You know, Tony McClung took a bunch of the 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 gigs I had when I left, and so it's interesting to see his development and. Now there's a whole, you know, there's two more generations of guys that are playing great in Columbus. So yeah. it's just interesting to see how everything just keeps progressing. It's really amazing. Um, yeah, it's really amazing. And and it, it's a reminder that there are pockets of talent all over the all over the country and all over the world that aren't necessarily in the quote-unquote music capitals of Right. The country, you know, there's there there's so much talent to be tapped into, and to recognize and to learn from, no matter what yeah. part of the country you're you're living in. Yeah, I remember Mike Clark recently. He was like, Where, "You're from Columbus, right?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And he said, "Man, I can remember hearing bands in Holiday Inns in Columbus that were great." So, so it's just interesting, you know. I, yeah. I just think that that that's a real hotbed of talent. I think the school systems are good there. Traditionally, you know, there were music programs and and there was lots of gigs and there were there's a whole generation of people. I, I actually, with my brain now, I wish I could go back and talk to Hank Marr in a mm-hmm. different way, and Gene Walker and and Rusty Bryant, who was someone I never played with, but I used to watch him a lot. Mm. And uh, um, you know, these guys were already really established nationally, and they all ended up coming to Columbus. You know, I, I assume that they probably bought some houses for really cheap and life was easy there for them and good. You know, it was a good quality of life. Right. But so many people were there. It was that, amazing. That, that were great. And and everybody seemed to really want to um, help. You know, if they saw somebody, like they saw me, like maybe I didn't sound so good, some, you know, doing many things, but they saw that I showed up and I was eager. Yeah. And that was rewarded with comments, you know, Tony Monica was there, but he had a gig at the family restaurant. So I never really met him. till after I came to New York, hmm. um, because he played at his, his family's restaurant, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So he's another great Columbus guy, mm-hmm. you know, Louis Chamoose, he's, he and I've been friends. I talked to him last week. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I've been friends since we were t- almost teenagers. So yeah, I love so, Louis. He's great. Yeah. Yeah, he's one of my good Columbus friends, for real. I used to bring um, my golden retriever to work at uh, Columbus <laughs> Percussion, and he goes, yeah. what's the name of your dog, Gigi? Was, <laughs> I was like, "It's no, it's not. <laughs> Peter, I want to ask you about something I thought about last night. I felt felt somewhat inspired by some of the events that have been going on this last week, yeah. and I was wondering if, if you'd be comfortable kind of getting a little bit into this, just your... Depth and knowledge of of jazz and jazz history. I, I'm wondering if 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 you could speak to the importance of African Americans in the creation of popular music like jazz and rock and 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 blues and everything that we've come to know as popular music and American music. Would you be yeah. interested in and in sure. willing to? I, I mean, I could talk to it on a slightly different slant in yeah. Columbus. You know, I think in New York City, whatever you want to find, 
you could find as a musician. So if you want a female musician, you can find it. If you want a male musician, you can find it. If you want a young person, you can find it. If you want an old person, you can find it. Whatever you want as your model for your ultimate band, there's a hundred people that could play that gig on the highest level. In Columbus, where where I was, you know, at least trying to learn how to play, um, I felt like the scene wasn't as big, so everybody knew each other and everybody would play with each other. You know, Joe Wong was in Bobby Floyd's band. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim Rupp was in Hank Mars' band. You know, it's it's so so there was integration with with all of these bands. I used to play a lot of gigs with Mary McClendon. Um, zero one, the, the original band I was talking about, we yeah. were an integrated band. And so I, I think that from an early age, race didn't really matter to me very much. And I saw and heard that, that obviously music from all over the world was like some of the best examples of what a culture has to offer. Yeah. So for me, I just always felt like I had a pretty open mind towards race. And I just, you know, to, to me, it depends on if we're, we could be friends or not. And, uh, you know, the first guitar player I played with, uh, Lance Ellison, he's an African-American guy. So, you know, like I, I knew his parents and I spent a lot of time at his house. And so the point to this is um, because Columbus is such a uh, uh, mixed city, at least black and white, um, you know, I, I just found that there was a lot of people to hang out with and, and do music with in some way. And so for me, I, I just feel like like I got to know other cultures through music. And so when I came to New York, one of the most exciting things was I could meet people from Jamaica who had a firsthand experience of Caribbean music. I met Afro-Cuban people. Uh, you know, people that played Afro-Cuban music from various places, mm-hmm. Brazilian people. I remember the day I met Daduka uh, at the collective and I'm like, man, I, I got some questions. Can I ask you? And he was so nice and he continues to be so nice putting up with my questions to this day. And so, you know, I just think music is one of the great equalizers of, of just seeing the greatness of different cultures. And I think the world we live in is not that. The world we live in is very segregated and separated, and I think that's by design, and mm-hmm. I think that's wrong, and I recognize that as a young kid, and when you drive down Main Street, one side of Nelson Road is one ethnic group, and another is on the other side of Nelson Road. You know, how is that? Um, it, it's by design, and um, I think most people go through their life in their group, and maybe they're not aware of the other group that much. They just don't pay attention that much. Or maybe they're scared of the other group a little bit or resentful of the other group. And because I'm a musician, I feel like I bypassed all that from the beginning. Right. I remember Hank Moore, he would talk to me about lots of stuff on breaks of the gigs. And, you know, I never felt like he was looking at me like in any kind of funny way. You know, he just dealt with me like I was a young person who was eager to learn. And, and, uh, you know, I cherish those, those relationships I had in New York. It's, it's just continued on the same way. And so I, I think, you know, if everybody played the drums, you know, they would see the world in a different way than if they just stay on the computer or, or go to their day job and go home. And I, I think that, um, America's been on a, in, in, America's on the verge of some kind of breaking point again, 
and it's happened before and it'll probably happen again. And I hope that at some point there's some, some people, some, some group of people have the stomach to make things more equitable, not only for different races, but you know, the, it's gotten so expensive to live in Columbus or Nashville or, or New York. I bought a place like six years ago, almost seven years ago. And you know, the, the values of the places around my neighborhood in Brooklyn have doubled in that amount of time. Yeah. And I say, well, that's good for me, but it's really bad for everybody. I know. And, yeah. and I don't think there's any good answer for this. It's just really some running away of capital, you know, the capitalist system. And I don't think that we should all be paid a monthly salary. I, I don't think that's the answer. But it just has to be a little bit more equitable. When I moved to New York, my first apartment was $330 a month to share. And it was a two-bedroom place. I shared it with a trombone player friend of mine who I still talk to. And, um, um, and actually, do you know Wes Little? I do, yeah. So Wes Little was one of my good New York friends, and he used to stay in our living room. And Wes Little was the guy I got my apartment from. That's I, hilarious. Wow. Yeah, I do know so Wes. I talk to Wes all the time. So he's one of my longtime friends. He's, he's a really intelligent, funny cat. And he played, he played his ass off at Manhattan School when we were students together, and he still plays great. So Yeah, he's, he was a, a guest on here as well. Yeah, wonderful cat. So my point is, to getting back to the $330 a month, you know, I could swing that playing a few gigs. I bet that same apartment got renovated and it's probably $3,000 a month. So, so all of a sudden it goes from $330 to $1,500 a month. And the gigs in New York don't pay substantially better for a local gig. If you go on the road, you could make some money. But, you know, the, the gigs sure haven't kept up with that, that you know, rate of, of inflation. So... You know, it's something's got to happen, and um, I don't know. I don't it's know what the answer is, but if I knew that, you know, I would not be a drummer. I would be doing something else in life. But yeah, I yeah. just hope that one day things can be more fair and equitable. Although it doesn't seem like that's coming anytime soon. It is so. amazing that you mentioned just music being just a great way to understand other cultures and wrap your head around it, even from an early age, to recognize what human beings contribute to each other. And it's so frustrating to think that there are musicians that I've met that just don't see that. And I'm like, how can you play music? How can you play music in the 21st century and not recognize the contribution yeah. of these diverse cultures and how important they've been yeah. to contribute to and give us the ability to do what we do? You know, we wouldn't have jobs. We wouldn't have this music. We would have this life without this diverse diversity of influences. Well, also, there's been, you know, we're we're right in this week of marching, um, and and um, it's not just blacks or or any one group marching. It's everybody's marching in New York. Yeah. It seems like like it's that way all over the world. So this shows the general level of frustration and discontent with the way certain structures have built our society and how it's changed. And um, we all know what the, the problems are and, and nobody really wants to deal with what the answers are. You, you know, the, the great thing is this time will pass, this pandemic will pass, 
and I'm still just dealing with music. And, mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean I don't care about these issues. I do. Um, but music will be, it, music was there before all these issues, during these issues, and, and hopefully after, because I hope that there'll be some resolution to these things. But for my life, music has been the one constant thing over and, over and above everything else. Here's a track with Eddie Bears performing on that 4x15 buyer snare drum. I was at the Village Vanguard March 8th. Um, I just all of a sudden said, you know, I'm pretty close to there. I should just circle by and catch a set. And I got there, and it, it, it was for the first set, and it was a little bit dead. Uh, they just started talking about, you know, maybe New York has to close, maybe L.A. is closing. And I, I remember just sitting in the Vanguard, and it was dark, and there weren't that many people there yet. And I'm just like, wow, I wonder if this is the last music I'm going to see in New York for a while. And then uh, that was like Sunday night. On Monday, I went to school, and already they were talking about perhaps New York is going to close. And we were just finishing up our quarter. Uh, we do four quarters a year. So we were finishing our quarter that week. So we did our recitals and, you know, all the finals and all the stuff. Turn, I turned in my grades Thursday and I said to myself, you know, maybe I should take some of my teaching stuff home. I don't know what's going to happen. So I brought some, some you know, curriculum stuff I have, uh, just extra copies of. And I brought it home with me, and on Friday the school was closed. And so we've been closed ever since. And we have a great president named Tammy Mays with the school now. Mm-hmm. She's been there for a while. And she spearheaded getting the school on, online 100%, and she killed it. And the guys that, that did all the work, the tech work, killed it. And within a few weeks, we started a new quarter online. And uh, this week is the – the last week of this quarter. So we've been online this whole quarter and it's going to end Friday. Graduation will be for this quarter will be on zoom this Friday. So it was pretty interesting. Um, did you, did you guys pick up any students, uh, outside the city as a result? Yeah, we did. Mm -hmm. We did. Some went home, you know, obviously because New York at that point was so hard hit with, with coronavirus cases that, um, some students went home, but we did definitely pick up some some uh, distance learning students. And um, um, for me, as far as my rig is concerned that I used to teach with, I was watching a Facebook Live uh, broadcast that a friend of mine was doing, and he he just he was he was really cool. He said, "I've been teaching online for a while, and here's the gear I use." And I'm like, "Wow." I need to think about this. So um, that was like Sunday night after the school closing on Thursday, whatever day that is. Um, and, I, and so Monday morning, I bought uh, an, a new interface and I had one of the Yamaha EAD units, which is a, a mic unit you clamp on your bass drum. And um, then I, you know, I, I had uh, one, I bought one uh, camera, webcam. 
And uh, I mean, there was everything was sold out all over the country at that at that moment. Right. Since right. then, I've gotten another webcam, so I have two webcams, and I've you know worked on my sound, and I've gotten Zoom tuned in, and um, I feel like you know my end of it is really good, and I'm this excited the heck out of me. I just felt like wow, I'm really learning some new things here, and I, I had been teaching on FaceTime or Skype. You know, for a while before that, but not a lot of students really. I never, it never was like my full time thing because I went to school every day. So, um, you know, I just found this quarter to be really fascinating. And anytime I have to learn something new, you know, there's always this moment of like um, complete panic and is this going to work? But pretty quickly that passes and I just dig in and I figure it out. And I think most musicians I know are the same way. Right. And I've just I've had a ball putting this together. I really have. Um, luckily, I had a great friend from Europe who FaceTimed with me on my iPad. And he really kind of got he thought about my setup and he really helped to get my initial stuff going. And he's been quite a help. So I was lucky to have have that he was a former student of mine who were friends 15 years later still and um so luckily i got some help there and um you know i've just had a great time teaching it's been really fun um i, I live in brooklyn and luckily i can teach here and and all that end of it has been okay and i just think that we would have gotten to this point anyway it's just However many years you want to predict, is it five years out, 10 years from now, whatever it is, I would think it would be five years we'd be here anyway. So yeah. I, I think I think that today we're going to find that, you know, we can teach hopefully soon, you know, back at the school. But I think also it's a tremendous opportunity to be able to teach people that can't come to New York yeah. or, or maybe they stay in their hometown and then they come to New York periodically or or maybe halfway through you know i don't know N none of this is is happening yet but i i just entertain these things in my mind and i just think wow if i could have studied with you know any number of teachers i wanted to study with when i was young over the internet that would have been amazing I w and i would have really taken advantage of that oh yeah and and i i just think that this i, I think as much as people are afraid of it i think there's a, some tremendous opportunity here um, I, I think maybe a school kid, it's a little bit different because socialization of, of learning how to, you know, deal with the social aspect of school, I think is really important as a young person. But I think later, you know, post high school, I think this thing is perfect. And I'm sure they'll, they'll think of something that I haven't even thought of to, to make this more possible for kids. So what about Zoom? Are, are you, why are you choosing that over other platforms like FaceTime? Um, Zoom, uh, was picked by my school. So okay. <laughs> they're, they're like, you're going to use Zoom. But the, the thing, the, 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 that sounds ridiculous what I just said, but how I said it, but, um, it's, it's really true. And I think that in consulting with a lot of my colleagues, almost everybody's using Zoom. So some of the public schools are using Google Classroom or Google Hangouts. I don't, I'm not familiar with that at all. Um, but Zoom seems to be the go-to for almost all the musicians. And I find it to be a pretty stable platform. You can share files. You can share – like I can screen share a chart, for example. Or if I want to play – like today I was playing some music examples and I can share my computer audio with them, which really increases the quality of it. 
Right. Also, Zoom accepts two cameras. So I have a the sky cam, you know, the above me cam, and I've got a Peter cam that, you know, I'm, <laughs> they're looking at me when I'm, when, when I have that camera up. Gotcha. So it's nice to have a couple different vantage points. And, um, I got to say the Yamaha EAD was perfect for my, my situation, which is just get a good overall sound and send it. So I've, I've really enjoyed that. I'm not getting a plug from Yamaha, but it is a great box, I think. And, and, uh, that was one of the better things I bought um, during this time. Well, while we're on the kind of tech world of things, uh, I, when we uh, right before we uh, ended this first half of this first segment, uh, we were talking about social media and kind of navigating that. You yeah. mentioned that you were not about it at all now that you're all about it. So why the transition or what, what, why did you resist and, and what's been good about it now? Yeah. Well, I just think things are really, again, it's an interesting time to be alive because we're really seeing things go from the analog world to more the digital world. And I see these sci-fi movies. I I like sci-fi movies and I see these things and I'm like, things are inching towards that. You know, it's definitely a new world that we're, we're coming into. And, you know, I was lucky enough as a young person to play all the time, play all the time in clubs, um, hundreds and hundreds of gigs a year and um even when i moved to new york in the 90s there was tons of work here and i think in new york or nashville or columbus where we're both from i think there's less of those kind of regular gigs because i think people don't go out the same way that they used to before Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of reasons for that and we don't even have to like go off on that tangent it's pretty clear that the world is turning a little more digital and a little less analog and um i still played several gigs a week and in addition to my teaching schedule and this has basically been the schedule of my life you know my whole life i've been doing this and i feel fortunate that i could do both things and really enjoy things and you know the great thing about being in a city like nashville or new york where i live you know there's no bad musicians that you ever play with i mean the people that i play any gig with are on the highest level in new york so it, it's really amazing to just play great music with great people all the time. And I feel very fortunate about that. And of course, you know, how many people could be on the podcast? How many people could be in the magazine? How many people, are, you know, have a million views in social media? Well, underneath that are thousands and thousands of people that you never heard of that play on the highest level possible. Yeah. And it's just interesting. Some people, they, they have a knack for being noticed more or they work on it more. Other people that I know are very unassuming and play on the highest level. So, you know, who knows what makes that? Um, but I know in New York, it's just completely ridiculous how many people play so great. You go anywhere and just hear people that, that would make your jaw drop and you don't even know who they are. So, and that's one of the great things about coming to New York for even just a little bit of time, it just ups your perception and your game. And when you play with people like that, it's either you're playing or you're not. So but I think that that's Nashville's been, yeah, Nashville's <laughs> been that way for me too, man. It's, yeah, it's really it's gotta amazing. Be. Mm-hmm. It's gotta be that way. Um, as far as, uh, social media, um, for a long time, I just, I, I felt like I didn't really have time to devote 
to that so much, and I just sort of avoided it. And former students of mine or friends of mine, man, aren't you on Facebook? You know, aren't you doing Instagram? And I'm like, eh, not really. But I started to get involved, and I don't even remember how long it's been. It's been a little while now. Um, but I just realized that that's such a great platform to make it into whatever you want. And I think both both Facebook and Instagram are good for um, the same thing or different things, you know, depending on who you talk to. And for me, I look at these things as as um, somewhat personal, but it's more for me like a blog for music. So I post music all the time. Um, I talk about music. Um, you know, sometimes I post things that are more personal and or more topical. Like, I, you know, lately there's been some topical posts that I, that I had dealing with what we're going through. Yeah. But, you know, really for me, it's all about like some cool music stuff. Most of my friends are musicians or artists or, you know, and, and former students and people I've known a long time. And, um, I just find that the irony of this time period that we're living in is I'm doing so much more online because this is what people are doing. Um, I've been doing master classes with some colleagues of mine on Zoom, and um, I'm talking to you today because of that. Right. And I just think that there's all this opportunity here in a good way. And I'm not looking at it like, oh, I want to take over the world because the, you know we're stuck inside. It's just a reflection of this moment. And um, I just think that social media for me has turned into, like I say, like a blog spot. And it's really a nice way to keep in touch with this really big group of musicians that I've known my whole life. And um, it, it was just my birthday the other day, and it was amazing how many people reached out and said, hi, hey, you know, I just had a kid. Hey, this is what I'm doing. Hey, I have a new gig. Hey, I just wanted to say hi. I have nothing new to report. You know, whatever it is, it's always really great to hear from people. And um, so for me, social media has been very, very positive. That's great. Um, and I love the way you refer to it as a, a, as a blog space for music. And I think a lot of us kind of have, especially when I started the podcast, knowing that um, there were going to be all walks of life and all different points of view, we could come together in a safe space and yeah. and talk about music and talk about drums and, and and the world that that encompasses. Then there are, I feel like there are times when you just can't be silent with, yeah. with in a, when in, in certain situations. And I feel like this week has been, well, this, this week has been another example of that. So I don't post a lot of politics I am very engaged in politics. I'm, I'm my family is proactive. Um, I, you know, I do all those things. I don't do it online for yeah. a variety of reasons, you know, and yeah. living, living in Nashville and working with lots of musicians that see the world differently than me has been a real eye-opening experience because in Columbus, yeah. we all kind of thought roughly the same thing. Yeah. And we're artists and came from this point yeah. of view. Nashville's not like that. It's it's you know it's it's people from all over the country. So you're going to get all different types of views. Yeah. So I had to be real careful to to kind of like balance my work relationships with some of the things that I felt more passionately about, and how do I cultivate that? But 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 still feel uh, like I had 
personal integrity. And so, yeah, there, you know, you find that there's people you don't work with or don't want to work with or so, so make that decision, but I don't know. It's, it, I, it's fascinating this whole di- di- dynamic of social media and how we navigate that uh, with, um, you know, with music and, and all that stuff. Absolutely. And you've done a great job getting all your podcast info out and um, just you telling me, hey, you want to do this thing? Made me look. And, and the first thing I did was look on your social media. And, you know, you've really represented yourself well there. And that's oh, awesome. That's, that's good. Well, I have um, a lot. I have help from from Zach and he does Instagram. I do Facebook. And then we have the web, cool. then we have the website. And he's been just such a, a great partner. And and uh, we try and keep each other um you know, uh, uh, going as far as, uh, you know, being responsible with those sometimes menial tasks. Yeah. Well, I sure don't know what I'm doing really. Um, I, <laughs> I really post like, you know, someone juggling cats, unless it's really funny, I'm probably not going to be the one, um, posting that thing, but I probably will post a cool Brian Blade video. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, people say, well, you could do more. You could use this. I just haven't really figured that out yet. But I, at the same time, you know, my, my world isn't coming to an end because I don't know that yet. You know, it just, I just keep chipping away at everything. Some, some young person was saying, you know, someone in their like early 20s like, man, when you, do a drum vi- uh, when you do a drum video of you playing, you get all these hits. Why don't you do anything with that? And I'm like, I don't know. Will you teach me? You know, like, what do I do with that? You know, like mm-hmm. in a good way that's not, not stupid, you know, not tacky. And, uh, so, you know, I don't really worry about all that. I just say, I'll just keep going and enjoy it. And every day I look on social media and somebody reaches out and says hi to me or, or vice versa, or they have a great post. Um, I interviewed Mike Clark. I was talking about that a, a little bit. I saw some of that. Ago. Yeah, it's great. And, my questions came straight from his social media, like things that I wanted him to talk more about that he was talking about in his post. So, so that's, you know, a really good example of me using social media to figure out what I'm supposed to ask this guy. And, uh, that's a really good point too. And, you know, when we are preparing to interview, uh, our guests, I don't reach out to them, except go online and look and see. And sometimes everything is laid out and I can, you know, I know what I want to talk about. Sometimes there isn't as much information, but that's still okay because this is a conversation. I'm not going to know all the answers to the questions I'm asking or the topics that I want to cover. And of course, this being a long form discussion, it's unpredictable where it's going to go anyway. So, but it is interesting how how I've learned just through the podcast and interviewing, preparing for interviews, how accessible some people make themselves and, and others don't, and, or maybe don't, yeah. don't need to. And then we've had some, some very young, uh, wonderful musicians, uh, drummers on that have mastered this <laughs> social yeah. media. And I think that's a great idea. You're like, Hey, teach me. Um, yeah, we've, I wish uh, somebody would reach out and, and like, you know, Give me some pointers on that. That would be great. So I'm I'm putting it out there. Feel free to hit me up and tell me what I could do better. Because you know the, this the world that uh, some young people have grown up in is the is this is their world, 
Yeah. And um, totally. You know, yeah, culture can be learned, skills can be learned, but you have to learn about them. So, yeah, it's interesting. Well, um, um, Kip Allen is a is a young, wonderful player here in Nashville. Uh, we had on uh, back in mid March, episode two sixty. Um, he is a, a master at, at that and, and, and recording at home and doing different things like that. But uh, that's an example of, of I just sat there with my mouth hanging open talking to him. You know, we weren't shut down yet. And he actually uh, came to my house for the interview. And that was really nice and uh, to be able to do that. But he's telling me about all this stuff. And it just it was just like nothing to him. And, and Instagram posts and having thousands of followers yeah. It just had it really dialed in, and so I, I picked his brain. I mean, boy, talk about feeling like an old man, and I'm like, what? <laughs> How? Why are you doing this, and what are you doing? And, yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah. okay, okay, boomer. There was many okay, boomer moments. <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, guess, guess who I'm going to look up later, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll just throwing that out there if there's anybody that's kind of feeling the same way, and, and that's also the, yeah. the joy of... of of discovery uh, with yeah. this, but you know, you know the, the maybe the difference between me and somebody else is I don't really that doesn't bother me because yeah. things come around when that when they should and anytime I want to do more with it I can and uh, you know part part of the the reason I think I could feel that way is I I am busy all the time you know it's not like I ha- I'm constantly worried about my schedule being empty and. Even now, and and thankfully, really. Who, thankfully. who can say that they've built a career without social media? You know, very few people at a certain age can say that. But I mean, like yeah. you, you've done that. You, you that was necessary. You had to do that. You had to build a career and a network without social media. Well, I had fun because it it really just was me meeting people and trying to find people that I wanted to be friends with, like I said before, you know, so to me that was like pretty organic and I, you know, it's like finding a musician you want to play with is sort of like, I don't know, speed dating or something. I've never done that, but from the description of it, you know, it's like you're moving fast and you're trying to find connections. Right. So I think pretty quickly when we start playing with somebody, we know if there's a click or whether there's not true. and we just are try- always, I guess, trying to find that click, the thing that makes things work. And and it's funny, um, the people that I felt like I had a connection like that with, and they probably felt that towards me, I could not see them for a long time, and we see each other again, and it's like we there was no time in between. You know, it seems like it's a timeless relationship in a way. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. Yeah, for it's sure. It's cool to have those. And we're lucky that we can feel those things and experience those things in life. And most people, you know, it's funny. I've talked to many lawyers. I thought I was going to be a lawyer maybe at one point because I think I kind of have the brain for that. Like I could have done the work and, and all that. And then the more I talk to lawyers, they're like, you know, you don't really understand what we do for a living. I don't think you would really want to do this. <laughs> and And so, you know, I never forgot that. Talking to several people. And um, even later when I was in New York, I met a very famous music attorney and we had a mutual friend. He's like, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a musician. He's like, just stay there. He said, I was, you know, negotiating this huge contract, multi-million dollar thing. And I, I can't wait till I can stop doing this. You know, it's just horrible for me. That's and amazing. so you and I are lucky because we really spend our life doing something that we love. And yeah. Is great. And, and um, 
you know, the, the trick is, can we make a living doing it and can we stay vital and healthy and, and, you know, keep going and not get jaded and keep up with the, the way the world's moving in our, in a, some kind of way that has reality to it and it's not fake. You know, these are the challenges, but for me, I, I feel very fortunate that I could always just be a musician and I feel like I'm still 15 years old. I don't think much has changed yeah. in any aspect of my life. Well, going back to what you said about just, you know, seeing someone and not seeing them for a long time. I mean, you and I did not react, uh, or you and I did not interact a lot when I was in Columbus, but I knew who you yeah. were and you were, yeah. you were very open to spending some time with me today, man. And I can't thank you enough for doing this. Thanks, Matt. This has been great. It's yeah. been really cool. Yeah. And I, I hope, you know, I hope we'll see each other sometime, some way when all this craziness stops and we could just hang out and have a beer and, and catch up some more. Please be safe. Uh, sounds like you're set up well to continue your work and the school has done all the responsible things to, to make that happen. And that's really good news. And we'll just continue to, to keep in touch and, and uh, send people your way if, if they're coming to New York and hopefully when things get back to normal, we all can, we can all see each other and, and, and Absolutely. get back to work the way, you know, as much as we can. So Yeah, and please, best of luck to you with the podcast, with your playing, with your family, and you too, please be safe. Yeah, and, man. Uh, Thank you. forward to seeing you on the other side. Right. For sure. Yeah. Pete, have a good day, man, and uh, I'll shout at you real soon. That's great, Matt. Take care. Okay. Thanks. See you, man. All right. Bye-bye. So there you have it, my conversation with Peter Retzloff. Uh, thank you, Peter, so much for taking some extra time and speaking with us about what's going on in New York these days. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Otis Brown III, a New York jazz veteran who's worked with such talents as Esperanza Spalding, Joe Lovano, and many others. Once again, we thank everyone for your support and listening and hope you all are staying safe and staying positive, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.